This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of the advertiser. The opinions expressed are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. I'm Martin Strong, and let's get right to the consumer news from the past week. So was Wendy's restaurant really going to implement surge pricing? meaning that they would charge more for that double with cheese if it was at a time of day when more people were wanting a double with cheese. It's much like what Uber does, surge pricing. After that became a big story earlier this week, Wendy's spent the past few days saying, no, it's not true. And they never used the phrase surge pricing to describe its plans. The burger chain issued an official clarification on Wednesday. They say they are planning to invest about $20 million to launch digital menu boards at all of its American company-run restaurants by the end of next year. And these menu boards will let them change not only what food is on the menu for certain parts of the day, uh, but in their words, offer discounts to customers in the slower times of the day, which technically is still the definition of surge pricing. We'll see how customers react to that because they certainly were not happy on social media earlier in the week when that story first broke. The big banks in Canada are continuing to make money, big money. Earnings reports are out for a couple of them, and the Royal Bank is reporting a first quarter profit of $3.58 billion. That's up from $3.13 billion a year earlier as the money it set aside for bad loans rose. And National Bank of Canada is reporting a first quarter profit of $922 million. That's up from $876 million a year earlier. The fight between Canada's competition commissioner and the movie theater chain Cineplex continues. The competition tribunal is hearing arguments in the case as Cineplex is accused of what they call uh, drip pricing. Drip pricing pricing. That's where customers are drawn into buying something online without getting a full picture of the final cost because there's extra fees that they tack on at the end of the process. A lawyer representing the competition commissioner says moviegoers don't have any way to avoid these fees. But Cineplex points out that customers can avoid the extra $1.50 fee by buying tickets in person at the movie theater, that buck fifty does add up. Cineplex has made almost forty million dollars from those online booking fees since June of 2022. A new Angus Reid poll suggests one in six Canadians uh, are opposed to vaccinating their children. One out of six parents. That's quadruple the number who felt that way before the pandemic. The poll also suggests a lot of parents are worried about the trend. Seven out of 10 people asked are worried that this rising anti-vaccine sentiment could lead to a lot of serious diseases that we had under control coming back. And the survey comes as health officials around the world are warning about an increase in cases of measles, which is something that can be prevented by a vaccine. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in the U.S., an estimated 136,000 people, mostly kids under the age of five, died from measles in 2022. A 75-year-old man from Long Island, New York, has pleaded guilty to illegally trafficking bird wing butterflies 
and other rare insects. Birdwing butterflies are among the rarest butterflies and the largest ones in the world. Under the terms of his plea deal, Charles Limmer agreed to pay a fine of more than $30,000 U.S. and hand over his collection of roughly 1,000 butterflies. He also has moths and other insects. He also faces up to five years in prison, but he could have got 20 years in prison if it went to trial and he was convicted. This is Vancouver Consumer. I'm Martin Strong. And coming up next, it's a look at real estate with our friend Johnny Smartpoint. So what do you need from a real estate agent? We're going to get into that. What questions should you ask if you're looking for a real estate agent? So if you've got a, a, a property that you're thinking of selling, uh, you definitely want to hear that. That's when Vancouver Consumer continues right after this. This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of the advertiser. The opinions expressed are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome back. I'm Martin Strong. It's Vancouver Consumer, and it's time to talk real estate with our friend John Carlson. Uh, he's with Remax Lifestyles, but you can find him online at johnnysmartpoint.com. Uh, you can also send him an email, john at johnnysmartpoint.com. And uh, John, uh, first of all, welcome to the show. And uh, congratulations on 28 years in in real estate. That's a pretty incredible achievement. Well, thank you. Uh, you know, it goes by pretty quick. Uh, I'm sure you uh, would agree uh, with that. But um, this is my 28th year in the business. I uh, just got an email from the real estate board congratulating me on on my uh, diamond master medallion status. There's all kinds of different statuses out there that they give, but um, I'm really happy that over the years I've I've worked with a lot of great clients that keep me going, they keep me busy, and quite frankly, they keep me sharp because there's nothing um, you know there's nothing like real world experience on a on a daily and weekly basis in a in a business like this, Martin, where things are changing week after week and month after month. So I'm happy to have survived, and I'm nowhere near done. Uh, and that's part of the reason I'm with you today. I've, uh, you know, I'll be working another decade at least. Uh, I do love it and uh, looking to get better and better every day and serve my clients better every time. Uh, so let's get down to it and talk about spring, March real estate 2024. Yeah, yeah. And and just to, you know, to talk about 28 years, I always think of uh, professional athletes. You can score all the goals, you can get all the assists, all that stuff. But to me, the real mark of success is being in the game for a really long time. And I think that's the, the same for all sorts of things, whether it's broadcasting or, or real estate. The fact that you can be in the game at a high level and be successful for 28 years is pretty good. So uh, I think that's something to, to really, really be proud of. So uh, let's, let's talk about uh, the spring. I mean, uh, weather's been a little spotty. Uh, I, I guess, does, you know, like spring, like, first of all, because I, what I want to talk about today, I want to really get down to the nuts and bolts of what people want from a realtor and what they need from a realtor and what they should get from a realtor. And maybe people don't know that, but the idea of springtime, I guess, is a very uh, a big time for real estate. That's when people start thinking about looking or, or maybe the weather's getting better. Is, is, is that a, a fair statement? Oh, yeah, absolutely, Martin. Um, statistically, you've got March, April, May, 
you know, in June are, are big, big months in Greater Vancouver and the Fraser Valley. You touched on part of that weather. Uh, we get through the Christmas holidays and there's a lot of personal stuff. And, you know, people in the spring, the, 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 the properties look a little better. The flowers come out. And the nice thing about real estate in, say, March, now that we're into March, is that if you're looking like most people are, not everybody, some people are just looking to sell a property, whether it's an estate sale or whatever, and move on. But most home sellers, let's say, in Greater Vancouver and the Fraser Valleys are not just looking to sell the property they're in, but they want to coordinate that with a purchase. And they want the process to go smoothly, obviously. Um, and they, you know, nobody wants to be, you know, living on the street uh, in between the sale of a home and another home. So it really, you know, as always, I find, you know, in my years of real estate, I find, you know, in the spring, people are, they're thinking, hey, how are we going to handle this sale? How are we going to move? We're a little bit nervous because, you know, we read the newspaper and we, we listen to the radio, we hear the statistics and we understand that every market has its own challenges. But they think, what does it really look like for us to have a successful move? Uh, and, and oftentimes that means maximizing the sale price of their home so they have enough money to buy what they want on the other side. But a lot of things come into play in terms of timing uh, and strategy. In other words, do we write an offer subject to the sale of our house and buy now and then you know, give ourselves time to sell? Or do we sell first and then look for a property as we get offers on our home? Like, How does the whole process work? So in a nutshell, I think in this program, Martin, you, you hit it right on the head. One thing we should be talking about in March is the process of making a move. What does it look like? What does a win look like? And you know, more importantly, from, from my point of view, uh, given the fact that people are interviewing agents right now, what do I want to maybe look for in a real estate agent? And, and how can a good agent or even a great agent make the process smoother, but also give me what I would consider a win, putting more money in my pocket and putting me in a very strong position to get the next property that I want. Because let's face it, this is a very competitive business. The stakes are are quite high in terms of people's having um, most of their money invested in their real estate uh, principal residence in this part of the world. So again, what should we be looking for? And how are we going to make this move in such a way that we're going to be happy not only with the process of the sale, but in the next property that we're in that we may be living in for the next 10 or 20 years. Right. John Carlson is our guest, Johnny SmartPoint. You can find him online, johnnysmartpoint.com. And uh, as John just said, we're kind of, uh, we're sort of digging deep into the basics of uh, real estate and why you need a good real estate agent. And let's go right to the beginning. Say there's somebody listening and they're thinking they want to sell a property. Um, what's the very first thing you do when you're looking for an agent? What are, what are you looking for? What are the very first questions you ask? Well, again, it depends on your your situation. Some people have uh, a lot of experience selling properties. Some have none. Uh, and again, I, I get asked, you know, to talk to people about every stage of the real estate uh, situation in terms of buying and selling. But I think when it comes right down to the very beginning, uh, you know, one thing I found in in and now that I'm in my 28th year, Martin, is that people don't really necessarily even know the right questions to ask. And I think it's very intuitive um, and, and natural for people to, and very important, don't get me wrong, to want to sit down with a real estate agent and say, hey, is this a personality match? Is this someone I feel comfortable with? And I, I think that's one of the very first steps where agent, where potential home sellers 
they may talk to some friends or they may go online and look at reviews or um, they may remember a sold sign on the street down the road from them last fall, let's say, and they thought, you know, this person seems to have been successful on our street one time. Let's try him again. So I think from the average consumer mindset, um, people want to do a little bit of research and from there narrow down the field and they want to invite usually one or two or three agents, not at the same time necessarily, <laughs> but over to their home to talk about the process. And, and I think that at that first stage, oftentimes it's just an information gathering session, or sometimes it's just, you know, where a husband and wife might sit down and they might meet three different agents and they might say, you know, agent A, uh, you know, seemed a little bit too harsh. Agent B didn't seem to give us good answers to the question, but agent C, boy, this person, really seem to have a good grasp in terms of what we, you know, what the real estate market's doing. And they ask the right questions so that they can understand what it takes for us to get a win. Because again, I've used this, this expression before Martin is you never want to try to be the answer to someone's prayers until you know what they're praying for. And so <laughs> when I sit down with people, I, I, I thank them, of course, um, we, you know, we talk, I, I leave it open for them. I say, go ahead and lead the way I'm an open book and anything you want to talk about, we're going to do that. And then I make sure to try to understand what it is they want. And I'll ask them outright, like, what does a winning scenario look like to you? What, and, and by asking questions, I think you can get a long way in terms of getting ahead of the game to figure out what it is that might be necessary that the people don't even know that they're not asking, um, so again, I guess to answer your question, hopefully I'm answering it is the very first thing that a lot of people think about is let's find a good personality match. And uh, along with that, I think, you know, comes that people are pretty good at judging whether or not um, a person is, um, you know, shooting straight from the hip um, and giving straightforward answers and trying to solve problems and suggest ideas that will be helpful in the process as opposed to someone who maybe wants to twist their arm or, uh, you know, maybe get into a little bit of a sales tactic-y thing. So I think the first step is find somebody that you're comfortable with. Maybe they work with a family member or a friend. Maybe they've been successful in your area before, but nothing really happens until you sit down with people and they get a chance to interview in person. Yeah. And I, I guess it's all about the questions maybe the questions that the real estate agent is asking. And if you get a sense that the person is only asking questions about, you know, getting a quick sale and a quick commission, but they're not asking questions about uh, your situation, where you, you know, what you plan to do and all those kinds of things. I guess that's a red flag. Yeah. And I suppose there's all kinds of different people in different, you know, uh, professions but one thing that, and, and this is just me, what we're going to talk about today, Martin, is, is based on my experience. There are lots of different agents out there that may have different points of view, different experience levels, you know, and I'm not, I'm not judging or passing judgment on them or the way they do business. I'm here to give people an insight into how I work and how I think a, a potential uh, client of a real estate agent might want to think prior to hiring someone, you know, to their benefit. But here's one, one quick thing. I never, in, in fact... Even if someone starts to offer it, I might be sitting in an appointment with someone and maybe it's early on in the process. Maybe we haven't listed. Maybe we even have. And if they were to say to me, well, you know, John, uh, my bottom line, like the lowest price I could take, I, I, you know, especially at the beginning of the process, I'll say, well, well, just hang on a minute. Knowing your bottom line in terms of your lowest price you'll take is not really useful to me just because, first of all, 
um, it, you know, if I weren't an ethical agent or if I was, you know, prepared to use that information against them, that which I never would be. And then I don't know agents who would. Um, but that's not something that's really helpful to the process. And I like to say to people, look, why don't you just kind of keep that to yourself right now? I'm going to give you my thoughts on the market and then we'll kind of compare notes because I think it's a red flag. You know, if I walk into a car dealership and I'm looking for a vehicle in the car, one of the first things the, the salesman says to me is, okay, how much can you spend per month or what's your budget? I kind of see that as, you know, that's information that's not really necessary at this point in time. And if you're in the, if you're a real estate agent, Martin, you have a duty, you know, an ethical duty to represent the interests of the client, not to get a sale at all costs. So, there are times, I want to be careful here, there are times when it is very important for an agent, once you've gained the trust and you're you're working in an agency relationship where you owe that client the duties of confidentiality and full disclosure and you're working for them and them alone, some situations do require that an agent knows you know, what offer may be acceptable. And those would be a little bit unusual, to tell you the truth, Martin, when when uh, maybe there's a pressure where there has to be a sale, the bank is, you know, the wolf is at the door and the bank is threatening to take over. Um, but in most situations, uh, I think that a, a good agent will listen to what the goal is and then give advice based on that. And just one, you know, this my first little fairly obvious nugget would be, um, you know, as an agent, I always make sure to not be concerned about what the lowest price that my client will accept, because that's generally not, um, you know, the kind of information I need to do my job in the best possible way. Right. And, uh, and that's a, another reason why you really need to trust the person you're working with, because I guess, you know, if the real realtor is kind of unethical, they, you know, and they know what that lowest price is, it just makes their job easier and they can, you know, get on with their day. And Well, and I want yeah. to be careful not to suggest that any agents are unethical. No. I'm just suggesting that some information is important to have and some is not. And if you are trying to get a good feel for an agent to understand uh, you know, how how in tune are they with your needs? That would be one question that I don't think, you know, would serve a seller that well. So again, an agent yeah. needs to know the situation, but certain things, there's nothing wrong with certain things remaining private, uh, you know, even even amongst your agent and, and the client. So right. uh, that was just one example that I wanted to bring up. A great example, good piece of advice. If you are uh, thinking of, of selling a property, um, and you are looking for a realtor and, uh, go to johnnysmartpoint.com, J O H N N Y smartpoint.com. And you can uh, send John, uh, an email, John at johnnysmartpoint.com or give him a call 604-612-0080. And we are kind of drilling down into the basics of what you need from a realtor. And we'll have more with John Carlson, Johnny Smartpoint, when Vancouver Consumer continues right after this. This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of the advertiser. The opinions expressed are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome back. It's uh, Vancouver Consumer. I'm Martin Strong. And my guest this afternoon, John Carlson, you know him as Johnny Smartpoint. You can find him online at johnnysmartpoint.com. Give him a call, 604 612 0080 or send him an email john at johnnysmartpoint.com and we're kind of drilling down into the basics of 
you know, what is a real estate agent and why you should pick a good one and why they're so important. And uh, John, we were talking earlier about your 28 years in real estate. That's a, a lot of sales, uh, more than a thousand sales of properties in the lower mainland. And it's all around the lower mainland. It's not just in one particular area. But we've been talking about the kind of questions you should ask from your realtor when you first meet that realtor and when you're trying to find, you know, who you want to work with. Um, and and the difference between a, a, a good realtor, a competent realtor, and a skilled realtor can really, really make a difference in terms of what you walk away with. Uh, in terms of money, basically, how much you get for the property, all those different things. And so what are some of the the things that people need to think about when it comes to, you know, getting every dollar they can out of a sale of their property and how that relates to the realtor? You know, that's a that's an excellent point, because that's the one thing that I've learned um, above all else, probably, you know, in my years in this industry is that um, the way you conduct yourself as a seller and, you know, a good agent like myself, when I sit down with people, I'm not a decision maker, Martin. I, 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 I identify the scenario as best I can that we're in. Let's say offers have come in. Maybe we've got one, maybe we've got multiples. I explain the situation in a way that I think most sellers would not necessarily see in its entirety. Uh, at this point in time, I've already got a good situation in terms a good understanding of our leverage situation. Is our property something that has a wild card factor, like a, a view or a privacy or things that are very difficult to replace? And so I, I explain things, but I do not make any decisions. But oftentimes, Martin, you know, I've, I've been in a situation where I'm dealing with an offer or more than one offer with a seller. And uh, a seller might say, hey, you know, this looks pretty good. What do you think? Should, should we take it? And you know, I think if you want to get beyond the real estate 101 um, and, and all that stuff's important, important, setting the stage for the right offers to come in and being priced properly and demonstrating value of the home and all those sorts of things that agents do, you can really get into some advanced stuff. And I've said, you know, on a number of occasions to, to clients, hey, let me just put this idea to you here. Here's how I see our leverage situation. And, you know, in the next 30 minutes, we might make 10, 20, $50,000 more than, than this. Here's the risk. Here's the idea, but here's how I see it. So I think, you know, again, people don't really realize the ins and outs, but, you know, in the same way, when I watch a football game, let's say, um, you know, I, I see a quarterback who maybe isn't the fastest, doesn't have the strongest arm, but they they know how to win and they just pick defenses apart. And I think that has a lot to do with processing information efficiently and wisely in real time. And especially when you're dealing with an offer presentation where you've got between 7 and 9 p.m. on a Thursday night and you've got three or four potential buyers. Uh, how do you, uh, you know, process that in such a way to give good advice to your clients so they come out and make a lot more money than they might have had they not done things the right way? So when it comes down to it again, these are things that a lot of people don't really understand, but there's a lot of little tricks. So we can, you know, I'm going to touch on some of them and give you an insight into the mind of an agent who's done over a thousand sales and mainly represents sellers. My buyers tend to be people I've worked with already and sold their home. But um, there, there, I, uh, you know, I, I could put on a bit of a masterclass here, but I, I tend to keep things somewhat close to the vest so that I can deal with my clients. But let me throw a couple things at you. Okay, cool. When, when you've got interest in a property, you have to remember there's a lot of psychology at play here. 
uh, and a buyer wants to get, I mean, buyers and sellers' interests are competing. A seller wants the best price in terms he or she can get, and the buyer, you know, wants the property, but they want to get it the best price in terms he or she can get. So there's a couple of things that, you know, that I'm just going to throw at people. I've often been in a situation where a client of mine might say, John, if the offer isn't at least at this amount, I don't even want to deal with it. Just tell them to go. I say, don't waste my time. Thank you very much. Uh, so maybe dealing with a low ball offer or, or even an offer that's not a low ball, but it's not quite to the seller's liking. And, and oftentimes this is, this is something that's very simple, but sellers, you know, sellers will get emotionally attached and involved and they don't want to waste their time. But I have to sometimes remind people, wait a minute, even an offer that you might have very strong feeling you will never, ever accept. And even if the buyer has indicated this is our best offer and we will not go further. There's great value at keeping a potential buyer at the table, so to speak. Um, and this has to do with the idea that uh, one, one offer is good, more than one offer is even better. And again, psychology comes into this a little bit, Martin, but I've had situations where we've had an offer or maybe it's a subject to sale offer. And my client says, oh, John, I don't want a subject to sale offer. This is you know, and, and again, I'm not a decision maker, but I might say, hey, uh, you know, Mr. Smith, as you know, we've got two or three other people in the background. If we entertain this offer and we can get a long enough deadline on it and keep these people at the table for 24, 48 hours, there's a very good chance that we might be able to stir up some other interest from buyers who have a fear of loss. And so one of the little tricks in terms of how do you and it doesn't work with every property, Martin, every situation is a little bit different. But if you have a property that's hard to replace, uh, and offer something that you don't see in the market every day. You might want to be very careful about how you set up viewings. You might only want viewings once a week. In other words, there's not a whole lot of traffic through because of the price range perhaps might be high, but it's a special property. And if you can line up one or two or three people, even if you know one or two of those offers are not that great, well, guess what? The other people don't know what the offers are. So when I'm a listing agent, I'm never in a position to disclose to one party what another offer is. That's you know, that's against the rules entirely. However, I can let multiple parties know that offers are in, that they're being considered, that this property may not last another 48 hours, and that if people are serious, they might want to step up with something clean and attractive. And again, the more people you can get at one time into an offer presentation, psychology takes over to some degree, and then, you know, things can things can go very well for a seller. And, and yeah. just to back, yeah. Yeah, that's no, that's very fascinating. I, I I think it's it's really interesting, and and because when someone makes an offer, even if it's a lowball offer, they're still making a commitment, a very large commitment, and there there must be something about that property that they are attracted to. Uh, so so I, I it makes perfect sense to keep them at the table. It does, and that lends itself to. Uh, you know, the subject to sale offer. And that kind of went away during the, the heated market where there just wasn't enough supply and demand was crazy and interest rates were low. Uh, they went away. But I can tell you now without getting to too much detail that if you have an offer on your property that is subject to sale, um, that something in your back pocket, if you can structure it right, Martin, you need to have an out, a very quick out for other offers. Uh, but if you can structure a subject to sale offer, you can kind of have that back stove burner cooking with these people who really want your house and they're working hard to get their house sold so they can buy it. And that's a nice leverage piece to have. I can think of a sale just this past year where we had a subject to sale offer. 
Um, you know, and, and here's another little tidbit. When a subject to sale offer comes in at me as the listing agent, I ask that other agent for their evaluation. I want to know what's the list price of the property. How are you going to promote it? I want to know how likely it is that they're going to be able to sell in a quick time. And sometimes, even if in this one particular case, I had a feeling because I know all areas of greater Vancouver, this was an out of town listing. And I said to my clients, hey, you know, I don't think these guys are necessarily going to be able to satisfy the big number that they're putting on this contract. And what ha what happens oftentimes with the subject to sale is the buyers will call you a little week, a week or two later and say, hey, we got good news. We got bad news. The good news is we've got an offer. The bad news is we couldn't sell for as much as we thought. So now we want to renegotiate our deal with you. So in this one particular case, we suspected that might happen. And sure enough, it did. But by the time that happened, we were already working on something else. And again, to use that leverage to basically say to offer B, hey, we'd love to work with you. You're not subject to sale. You've got an unconditional offer. We're well aware that you've said this is your very best offer, and it may even be the full list price that we're asking. However, without telling you anything about any other interest in the property, I will say that my sellers have authorized me to tell you that we're pretty confident that if we just give this another seven days, that we're going to have an even better offer. So here's a number we're going to throw at you. We're not picking it out of a hat. We're letting you know that this is where our expectation is. And if you want to call us back in 20 or 30 minutes with an acceptance, and if you're there right by your computer to sign and do this, we can do this deal in 30 minutes. And these are the kind of leverage plays uh, in the last moments of negotiation that can make, you know, in this particular case, $50,000 in 30 minutes. So good agents who have a lot of experience and represent the interest of their clients first and foremost, who give good advice who do not dictate the process, do not tell their clients what to do, but they paint scenarios with pros and cons. And then I leave it, you know, leave it up to their clients and say, hey, what do you want to do? Sometimes a seller says, you know, I want the sure thing. Let's just sign it. Wonderful. Other times sellers say, hey, we really could use a little bit extra. If you really think that we could, within the hour, we could generate another $50,000 or more on this sale, we're all ears, John. Let's, let's talk about that. So these are discussions that you have moment to moment with clients uh, real estate is a lot more than just putting a sign in the yard and fielding phone calls and submitting offers. There's a real art to it. And I'm happy to say that over the years of experience, I've managed to put together quite a few little skills and I'd be happy to share those with potential sellers. Yeah. So it's all about psychology. I, I love that. It's so interesting. And that's what 28 years of experience will do. And uh, I guess, uh, you know, you've, you've really uh, chalked up the, the hours, the, <laughs> you know, a lot more than 10,000 hours, eh? Oh, gosh, I don't know how many hours have gone in. I'm, I'm very fortunate to be doing, you know, what I'm doing. Um, but, you know, I kind of sometimes feel like a MacGyver on, on TV. And, you know, I've, if anybody ever watched that old show, you'd, you'd know that this fellow would create a, a winning solution to a problem based on relatively simple elements in front of them. And, and sometimes I feel that way in real estate. It's, it's understanding the ground that you're standing on, understanding your leverage position. Is the market going up? Is it going down? What is your, you know, have you bought? Have you not bought? Do you offer something to the market that, you know, that, that buyers are desperately looking for? And usually, you know, you've asked enough questions of the other party to get a really good feel for, uh, you know, where you stand in terms of leverage. So I think a good agent, um, or a great agent with a lot of experience will really show his or her colors when the pressure's on. And that's when, uh, you know, provided you've done everything else right in the process, you can put yourself in a position where that extra money on the table uh, goes to you and not somebody else.
Yeah. And if you want to talk to John Carlson, he is very easy to get a hold of. Go to johnnysmartpoint.com online, J-O-H-N-N-Y, smartpoint.com. You can also give John a call, 604-612-0080. The email is john at johnnysmartpoint.com. And uh, thanks for talking to us. I'm looking forward in a couple of weeks. We're going to talk, talk about commissions. And uh, the next time we speak on Vancouver Commission or Vancouver Consumer, we're going to talk, we're going to kind of demystify commissions. So I'm looking forward to that. So thanks for spending some time with us, John. Thank you. I'll see you in two weeks. John Carlson, Johnny Smartpoint. And uh, once again, johnnysmartpoint.com is the uh, website. Up next on Vancouver Consumer, surge pricing. It's when products and services raise their prices depending on demand. And sometimes it makes no sense, but it's not new. And coming up, it's the history of surge pricing and how people are starting to fight back. That's next. This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of the advertiser. The opinions expressed are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome back. I'm Martin Strong, and it looks like the phrase surge pricing is indeed back in the news after it was announced that Wendy's restaurants uh, were investing in new menu boards that would change the prices of the food items depending on the time of day and how busy the place was. Uh, most of us first heard the phrase surge pricing being used to describe Uber when they charge way higher rates for a ride during times when their services are more in demand. Well, Wendy's is now saying they never used the phrase surge pricing and the plan was to charge lower prices in non-peak hours. But it's still technically surge pricing, especially if the higher price of that double with cheese goes up when it's, say, dinner time. Uh, Social media, of course, went nuts because I think we're all pretty sick of surge pricing. And it can be a pretty unfair practice. Remember here in the Lower Mainland uh, a few months back when transit went out on strike for a few days. Well, that forced a lot of people to use an Uber or a Lyft to get to and from work. And some riders claimed that they saw the fare they would normally pay triple in price. Uber Canada quickly announced, though, that they were putting a cap on surge pricing during that labor dispute. And they would also try to get more drivers on the road. And that's an important part of the equation. It's not always just how many people need a ride. It's how many drivers are on the road and available to give someone a ride. And there's a lot of stories on social media of people, say, leaving an airport in the middle of the night only to have the rideshare company charge many times what that same ride would normally cost. And surge pricing is also something we're starting to see when we're shopping online. According to one study, From 2016, it showed the price of a Nikon camera on Amazon.com changed within hours from $743 to $1,790. That's a 240% difference. So when did surge pricing get get its start? Well, it was well before Jeff Bezos. Uh, The first recorded incidents of what we now know as surge pricing happened in Rome In the first century BCE, Marcus Licinius Crassus, the richest man in Rome, 
So I guess he was kind of a Jeff Bezos type. Uh, he enlisted 500 slaves to form the, fir- the world's first fire brigade. Sounds like a great idea, apart from the Roman slave part, uh, but it's a fire brigade. Anyway, these firefighters would show up at the scene of the blaze. They would offer to put it out if the owner sold the property to Marcus Licinius Crassus at a big reduction. If the owner refused, they would just let it burn. And as it did, the price that Crassus was willing to pay would drop as the demand for the charred building dropped. And once the property had burned to the ground, Crassus's men would move on to the adjoining property and offered to buy it, pointing out to its owner that it was about to burn down. And it worked. The practice allowed him to buy out, buy up much of the property in Rome. Uh, so that's kind of a primitive form of surge pricing. And one trend that we're seeing now, uh, because surge pricing has been used by everybody from airlines to hydro, even pubs in England are doing it now but they're calling it dynamic pricing instead instead of surge pricing. Uh, But we all know it's the same thing. And pretty soon we'll learn that anything with the word dynamic in front of it uh, is out to fleece us. It's a little like George Carlin's bit about any food with a Y at the end. It usually means that there's very little of that food in it. For example, if you buy a candy bar that is described as chocolatey, there's probably not that much real chocolate in it. Uh, This is Vancouver Consumer. I'm Martin Strong. And when we come back, did you work on Leap Day on Thursday? And did you get paid for it? You might have been working for free. I've got that story and all the consumer news of the week when Vancouver Consumer continues right after this. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of the advertiser. The opinions expressed are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. 